The scripture reading this morning will be from Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against the anointed. For truly, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God. With boldness. How do you all handle when conflict comes into your life? Opposition, perhaps something that causes you to fear. Uh, do you tend to do you tend to get scared? Do you tend to uh, to take off and and flee? Do you tend to want to scrap or fight? You know, generally, a lot of I guess counselors and those in the um, therapeutic world would say we tend to um, fight or flight is how it's called. Take fight, you know, you engage if there's something oppositional or something in conflict or something that's causing you to be scared, you, you want to fight and engage it. Or take flight, you, you want to flee, you, you want to run, you want to cut out and, and retreat, go passive, go silent. Now, wh- which one is for you? When you are facing something that is opposing you, what is that reflex that you have? You know, the church itself has always faced opposition. It has from its infancy, I mean, from its very beginning, and it always will until the very end. And, and yet the church continues to plow forward. The church continues to be successful. In, in the face of opposition, oftentimes it doesn't fight. It doesn't take flight, but it just moves steadily forward. I mean, the question we've been asking over these past number of weeks is, why would people want to believe and and bring about trouble and harm into their lives? You know, we've looked first at this call that Jesus has given to us to be witnesses, that you, or the Christian, is to testify to the things of God that he has seen in Christ. And, and we're called to be witnesses to the ends of the world. Now, now these disciples, these apostles were called to do that, and they were told to just stay put until they received the Spirit. So we see immediately the essential, the absolute nature of the Spirit of God in terms of bringing about this ability to witness. And then secondly, we saw how the Spirit came, right? With, with this sound like a rushing wind and tongues as a fire. This was the inauguration, the beginning of a new age. 
And this is the promise of Joel. The Spirit would come upon men and women and young and old, and God's going to do a new work now through the power of the Spirit. And then, of course, we saw that in the very third sermon where Peter, now filled with the Spirit, gets up and preaches. And, and, and he gives us the message of the witness. And the message of the witness is this Jesus, this Jesus that was crucified, he's both Lord and Christ. He's both the sovereign king and he's the sovereign Lord. And, and we know that that was a spirit-wrought message. Why? Because 3,000 were convicted and converted. And, and then we found that these conversions, these witnesses gathered together through the preaching, formed the church. And so we saw that the church is really a group of witnesses, people who love to learn, who love to worship, who, who love to pray, who love to, to sacrifice themselves for one another. And then, of course, last week you heard about the nature of these witnesses, that they do face opposition. In, in fact, chapter 4 is kind of interesting because it's the first time the church faces opposition apart from Jesus. They didn't have Jesus. Uh, the question was, are they going to survive? Will they make it? Will they continue on without their leader? And, of course, we find, absolutely, but how? Why didn't the movement stop right there? Well, they prayed. And what we have today in the passage that Judy read, it, we have a prayer meeting. We get to kind of peer into a prayer meeting and figure out what were they doing? What gave them such power that things were changed so dramatically? They were so effective. Of course, we're going to find that the Spirit of God. You know, Charles Bridges was a a pastor in England in the, uh, eight, in the 19th century, and he wrote a book called Christian Minister. It was a really great book, a little dense, but it was a great book in terms of how to do ministry. And, and he draws this interesting comparison between Jesus and Peter. And here's what he says. <clears throat> he says, speaking of Jesus, though his doctrine was from God, though his character was perfect, and though his daily miracles attested his mission, yet little appears to have been done in terms of the breath of ministry. He says, while Peter, a poor fisherman, but endued with this almighty power, becomes the instrument of converting more under a single sermon than probably his master had done throughout his whole ministry. He's not comparing Jesus and Peter other than to say this is the power of the Spirit that the early church tapped into. And they tapped into it by prayer. So <clears throat> as we look at this passage, I want you to, to look at it in three blocks with me. The first block in verse 23 is just the setting. What occasioned this time of prayer? What precipitated it? Why did they gather together and pray? So we'll look at that in 23. And then we'll look at the content of their prayer. How did they pray? What, in fact, did they pray? Do you pray the way they prayed, or do you pray differently? And then last is in 31, which is just the fruit of their prayer. What happened? What did God do? How did he respond? So just three simple blocks. Look with me at 23, if you would. You see that it says, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elder had said to them. And when they heard it, I'm going into 24 a little bit, they lifted their voices together to God. So here's what's happening. While the, when they were released, you know from last week, Peter and John preached, healed the lame beggar, and they were thrown in jail. They spent the night in jail. They were released. Now they had been brought before the religious leadership. The religious leadership was the highest civil authority. They had the force of law. And they said, we don't want you speaking anymore about this Jesus. 
and they spent the night in jail just to make sure they got the point. When they were released, what did they do? Interesting that they didn't take off, they didn't cut and run, they didn't flee the city, they really ran to their friends. It's an interesting thing to do, you know, when you're in trouble, they went to their friends. Interesting way of referring to church members, their friends. They had help from their friends, they gathered together. They gathered together to pray. That word together means that they were of the same heart. They were united in mind, of one accord. What they did, frankly, was they just dropped to their knees and they prayed as if they had one voice. They were all in it together. They made prayer a priority. They weren't doing anything else. They got together. The first thing they did was they prayed. They didn't take flight. They didn't, they didn't marshal up some argument as to fight. They just prayed. You know, for the church to sustain a determined focus in this world, it, it has to make prayer a priority. Now, their opposition was obviously imprisonment and, and more for some. And it is that way for many. I do want us, because we do live in a bit of a Disney world, I do want us to recognize that even right now people are in prison. They're sitting languishing away over the nature of the gospel that is happening right now. So that is going on. But that's just not the only type of persecution and opposition uh, that the world brings to this message that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. It can be more indirect ways. It can be marginalizing. It can be kind of a slower path up the corporate ladder. It can be loss of friendships. It can be mocking. It can be kind of a, a, a just a distancing or perhaps just a... a, a considering as regardless whoever is that Christian. You know, it's kind of a pushing to the side and the periphery. But I would also say to you that this, that this opposition to speak the name of Jesus, it can also come in the form of, of something a little more deceptive, like our affluence, our comfort, our ease. We don't want to rock the boat because we like the boat that we're in. And so we're just going to keep not doing anything. We're going to stay silent. I would even say this to you, that even, even though it's not opposition from someone opposing the gospel, you know, people that are in desperate situations, troubled marriages, struggling in life, these things can become so consuming that it begins to also silence our witness. So there can be a lot of reasons that come into our world that we need to make prayer a priority. Now, when I say make prayer a priority, the way they did it was having others participate. They ran to their friends. You know, when we're in pain or suffering or threatened, we tend to isolate, remove. We kind of pull away from people. You see that they embedded themselves in people. They got with their friends and they prayed. And they prayed together. Have you ever known the joy that comes when you express the soul weariness and someone just stops and says, let me pray for you? And they take you and your name and your trouble and they appeal to God on behalf of you. That's what's going on here. There's this idea that we're participating with one another. That when we come together for prayer, it isn't just to try to get enough people so that God might be more disposed to hear us. God, God listens to the single person praying. The idea is that we're, he's drawing our souls together that when you share the burden with me, I'm bearing your burden with you. I am suffering with you. That's what they were doing. They prayed together. 
There's this, there's this shared burden over what is taking place in your life. And that's what joins us together as a community. This is why it's important to be part of a church, that you're known. Do you tend to isolate yourself when you're struggling? Do you tend to ask others? When was the last time that you asked somebody and said, you know, I am really burdened. Maybe you're in fear of man. Maybe, you're, maybe you don't feel bold in the gospel. Maybe you have suffered. Have you invited anyone? Would you pray for me? Would you lift me before God? I, I need to be lifted up. It's like I'm the paralytic. Somebody's got to carry me to Jesus. Would you do that in your prayers? So, so let me encourage you, if you haven't, if you haven't borne the burdens of someone close to you in this church, would you either offer to or invite someone to pray for you over the struggles that you're having or the opposition that you're facing or the threats that you've... Or, or maybe you're just scared to speak about the things of God to a neighbor. Invite someone to pray for you. Ask them, say, I'm just terrified to do it. Would you pray for me? So that's the situation. It was the opposition facing the early church. They immediately made prayer priority. But what did they pray for? How did they pray? Well, look with me at 24 to 30, because you're going to see it's kind of interesting. They both savored God <clears throat> as well as seeking God. Now, if you've come here today and you think that prayer is simply a time where you're asking God for things, it does include that, but only two of the seven verses actually have a petition. The first five verses are not a petition at all. Notice what they say. They say they're in, 20, um, in 24, the second half. They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. The first thing they're doing is they're savoring God. They're thinking about God. They're reminding themselves about the nature of God. And they're saying he's a sovereign Lord. Now, we know what sovereign means. It means all control. But Lord is unusual. It's rarely used of God. Uh, it, it's really used of, of often, it was used of a slave owner, of, an, of, a, of a person who owned others. They had total control. They had total, they could exert any authority that they wanted over that person. And so they're appealing to God. They're saying, you are the sovereign Lord. You are the one who rules all things and all people. And so they're praying to him, and they're saying, God, you're sovereign. You know what we're facing. You know the struggles that we have. And they're reminding themselves. This is why we pray, you're going to see with an open Bible. We want to know about the character of God. Strong theology leads to strong prayers. But why do they reference creation? Why do they say the maker of heaven and earth and the sea and everything that's in them? I think creation gives the most visible, the most easily understood example that God is without equal. God is without threat. God faces no challengers. At a macro level, when you look at creation, you think that he's numbered the stars. The billions of stars have all been created by him. He has numbered them. He's named them. All the stars he has made with his word. But you look at a micro level of creation. He's numbered the hairs of your head. He's numbered the days of your life. He's intimately acquainted with you. So, so when they're saying, oh, sovereign Lord, the maker of the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that's in them, they're reminding themselves. They're speaking to God. This is who you are. This is how great you are. 
and you begin to feel just this courage build up in you. I mean, what boss, what enemy, what spouse, what threat is in your life that would hold a candle to this maker of heaven and earth and the seas and everything that's in them? Reminding themselves there's nothing. There is no threat to God. But not just savoring that God is sovereign over creation, but that he's sovereign over the nations. Notice how they reference in 25. You see when he says, Who through the mouth of our father David your servant said by the Spirit. And now they're giving scripture back to God. They're not arguing with God, I don't think, per se. Maybe they are, maybe it's a biblical wrestling with God. But they're giving God back his own word. And they're saying to him this. They're saying, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. In other words, they're quoting Psalm 2 to God. Now, why are they doing this? Well, look at 26 and 20, or 27 and 28. They say, for truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant, against whom you anointed. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. In other words, they're getting it. They are facing the opposition that Jesus faced. And they understand that the opposition that they faced was actually foretold by David 800 years before. That nothing happened to Christ apart from what God had predetermined to happen. In other words, they're receiving hope. They know that God planned and purposed to crush the son, that he would bear our sins, that he would suffer the righteous wrath of God, so that we, by faith, might be saved and delivered. In other words, God's predetermined plan was for our salvation. It was for the good. It looked horrible. It was a miscarriage of injustice, of, of unique proportions, and yet God brought good out of it because he was working through it. And so this church is saying, you know what? Even the opposition we're facing, even the threats that we face, you know what? God's going to work through it. This isn't spinning out of control. This concerted effort at evil, it wasn't political maneuvering. It wasn't personal vendetta. God did it. And the suffering that I have, God is both directing and restricting it. And he will bring good out of it. His purposes will be accomplished through it. It causes us to look at life differently. It causes us to look at the threats and the challenges and the opposition completely differently. So, so you see that they're savoring God, both as creator over the nations and sovereign over the nations and sovereign over creation. Now let me ask you, do you see what's going on here? That our prayers reflect our theology. The way we pray reflects what we really think about God. I mean, strong theology leads to strong prayers. In fact, I would say that our theology actually directs our prayers. If we have a confused understanding of God, then our prayers are going to be that way. Like when you pray, do you think in your mind who God is in his person and in his glory before you pray? Do you consider that he has made all things, that there's nothing that he cannot do? Do you consider that he's sovereignly working all things out for a good purpose and a good purpose? end. Do you consider that? So when you're in the midst of trial or adversity or struggle, do you think, no, God is at work now doing something that though I can't see it, I'm going to trust him. I mean, I, I, would, I would give you this as a, as a, as a kind of uh, 
project. That if you're in trial now, or when you do enter it, that you're going to remind yourself, say, God, you're sovereign. You've made all things. You have ends that are designed that are beautiful. And I'm going to trust that you're bringing about your own purposes that will be for my joy. You'll bring about your own purposes, even though it's a very difficult situation right now. Can you see him doing that? Can you see yourself doing that? You know, Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, affliction, he's the, um, he was a pastor in London in the mid-19th century. Um, affliction is not a haphazard event. The weight of every stroke of the rod is accurately measured. He who made no mistakes in balancing the clouds and measuring out the heavens commits no errors in measuring out the ingredients which constitute the medicine of our souls. The knife of the heavenly surgeon never cuts deeper than is absolutely necessary. He does not willingly bring affliction or grief to the children of men. A mother's heart may cry, spare my child, but no mother is more compassionate than our gracious God. The thought is full of consolation that he who has fixed the bounds of our habitation has also fixed the bounds of our tribulation. So that's the kind of God that we want to refresh ourselves in. Now, if you're here and you're not certain of where you are in terms of believe in Christianity or not, consider what life is like apart from this kind of God. I mean, when you get up in the morning, is there not anxiety over what might be? I mean, how do you know? Why? What do you do with the despair that comes when it seems that the wicked always seem to prosper and the righteous seem to suffer? How do you make sense of that? Many people try. Harold Kushner, you know, wrote a book when... Um, bad things happen to good people. It was a huge seller back in the day. Here's what he writes. He says this, bad things do happen to good people in this world. But it's not God who wills it. Oh, God would like people to get what they deserve in life. But he can't always arrange it. Even God has a hard time keeping chaos in check and limiting the damage evil can do. Now before, before we chuckle, this is a bestseller. It, at, at, a surface, at a surface level, it kind of comforts you. God wants to help you. He kind of does. You know, and he's up there. He's not, he's not like this at you. He just really can't do anything for you. Or he's limited in what he can do for you. This brought people comfort. This, this makes me terrified. I mean, how do we deal with the randomness and the uncertainty of the day? Only a good, sovereign God makes sense of this world. Only a good, sovereign God can assure me and you that the details, the difficulties of our life have purpose and meaning and value, that justices will be wrought, that ends will be good because of a sovereign good God. So these, this church, in the middle of this oppression of the religious leaders, they turn to this God. This is the God that we turn to. But they didn't just turn to him to savor him. We do, but they also did seek him. And you notice that, that they sought the Lord. Now, what would you have asked for if you were in that prayer meeting and you were called to pray? What would the first thing be that you'd pray for? Would you pray for deliverance? Would you pray for protection? Would you pray for travel mercies? What would you pray for? Notice what they didn't pray for. 
They didn't pray their enemies would be crushed. They didn't pray to be delivered out of the situation. Uh, they didn't, they didn't, it didn't come to them that they felt like they were unjustly treated or unfairly treated. They didn't begin a boycott. Uh, they didn't want to get an, a new Sanhedrin in office. They didn't do any of those things. They simply prayed. They said, God, look upon the threats. They're opposing you, God. Now this is where maybe it gets a little, a little bit of a, of a dialogue with God. God, look at them. They're opposing you. You've told us to go and be a witness and to speak that Jesus is both Christ and Lord, and they're opposing you. So would you give us boldness to continue to speak the word? Now what's interesting about that is that's what got them into trouble in the first place. It was speaking about Jesus that got them into trouble. And they're asking for greater boldness to keep speaking what got them into trouble. I, I think there was some fear there. I think that there was some thought that maybe they would shrink back, that maybe the pressure and, 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 and the threats would begin to silence them and, and would begin to make them think, well, maybe I'll wait to share this gospel with somebody. <clears throat> maybe I'll take a little bit more time and develop a relationship. I don't want to injure friendships too quickly, so maybe I'll just wait. Maybe they were concerned with those things. And that's why they prayed, give us boldness to speak the word. They, just, they did not just pray for boldness, but did you notice that they prayed for miracles? They prayed for signs and wonders? But they prayed for these signs and wonders not to make them happy or to make their lives longer or to take them out of trouble. They wanted these miraculous events to advance the truthfulness of the gospel. See, here's the secret. I, I think the secret for this kind of prayer meeting it is that they valued the hope of the gospel more than their hope of an easy life. I, I think they valued the eternal benefit of being reconciled to God through faith more than the removal of the threat. They had this idea that Jesus was actually worth more than their own lives. And, and so they prayed for greater boldness. You know, prayers not only reflect our theology, prayers do reflect the prayers that we pray. They reflect what we treasure. They reflect what we love. They reflect what we think we need. When was the last time you prayed for a boldness regarding the nature of the gospel? Not, not an obnoxiousness, but a boldness to seize the opportunities that have been presented to you. When was the last time you prayed for someone to be healed that you would introduce the gospel to. I mean, that, that God, you would do a work in this person's life so dramatically that they would see it as a testimony to the truth of what I have said to them. I, I, I don't, you know, we got the apostles sensing a need to pray for boldness. Do we not need that same boldness? I, I don't think this is the only thing they prayed for. I do think they prayed for other things. But it's interesting that this is what Luke wanted us to know. This was the most important part of it. Paul prays the same thing in Colossians chapter 4. He says, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Now, if you are in prison and you have a chance to ask somebody to pray for you, it is interesting that that's the first thing he asked for. That 
you would pray that a God would open a door, not for him to walk through and get out of jail, but that he would walk through this door to be able to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. So let, let me ask you, what do your prayers reflect about what you treasure? I mean, how it's fine to pray for our lives and our children and, and you know, the harmony in our home. That's fine. But how often are we praying these more kingdom-type prayers, that Christ's name would be vindicated in this world, that his kingdom would come, that our witnesses would be bold, that the relationships that we have would be leveraged. We are God's witnesses to Christ. We are the ones testifying. How often do we pray for an advancement of the gospel through the relationships that we have, through the words that we use? And if you don't, I don't want you feeling like in a sea of guilt right now. I just want you to change. I just want us to begin praying this way. I just want us to begin saying, hey, each day I'm going to take a part of my day and I'm going to begin praying specifically for boldness in the relationships that I have. We are the witnesses. He is going to do his work through this group right here. There isn't a new team coming. There's not a new A team. That's we are the ones he's chosen. And praise God for that. I thank God. So we have this prayer time, right? They, the occasion is that they're being oppressed. Don't ever let the threat of persecution think that it's going to dissolve us into a puddle of fear. No, we're going to gather together and pray. And when we pray, we're going to remind ourselves that we're going to spend time savoring God and savoring that he's the sovereign Lord. He is sovereign over creation. He's sovereign over the nations. We don't have to fear, Jesus said, don't fear the one who can kill the body. Fear the one who can kill the body and the soul. So let's get, our, let's get our priorities in order. And then let's seek him. But when we seek him for grace and strength, let's seek him for boldness. And that's what the point of this prayer is, for boldness to, to continue to speak the word or maybe to start to speak the word. But notice what happens. Look in 31 with me. He says, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I mean, can you imagine that event? I mean, this building all of a sudden starts shaking. I actually prayed. I thought, well, Lord, would you shake the building? I mean, do we need that right now? What's going on here? Well, I think what God's doing is two things. He's answering the prayer. He's shaking the building. It's called a theophany. A theophany is just an appearance of God. It's God making his presence known in a tangible, visceral, existential way. We get it, he's here. He's shaking the building. Who can shake a building? You have to have very large hands to shake a building. He, he shook the mountain in the Old Testament to let the people of Israel know, I'm here, I'm, I'm in the grounds, I'm, I'm right here. He shook the temple to let people know, I'm here. So, so he was shaking the building to let them know that he is there to comfort and strengthen them. You can be bold to continue to speak the word. I'm here with you. So Jesus said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Particularly as, as he says, and I'll be with you always to the end of the age. And that was taking the message of the gospel out. So, so he is, sh Chrysostom, uh, St. Chrysostom was a, a great preacher. He was born in 400 AD, 5th century, early 5th century. And he was called the golden tongue preacher. And he said that God shook the building so that they wouldn't be shaken. He shook it for them so that they can go out and be bold, not be shaken by the threats and the fears of people. 
but he also filled them with the Spirit. Now, you think, well, hold it now. I thought they were already filled with the Spirit. Are they leaking? I mean, what's happening? It's like a bucket with a hole in it. No, remember, back in, in Acts chapter 2, that was the baptism of the Spirit. That was the Spirit inaugurating His presence in the world, beginning the age of the Spirit. That each Christian is baptized in the Spirit when he comes to faith. In other words, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. And so the fact that you are able to say, yes, He is both Christ and the Lord, that is a work of the Spirit. You've been baptized. You've been changed. Your old nature has been taken out. A new nature has been put in. You've been born again. That's the first work of the Spirit. But, but in the life of the believer, there's the need for the ongoing filling, refreshing of the Spirit. That's why Paul says to pray that we'd be filled with the Spirit. We want to pray to be filled with the Spirit. That's what they were praying for. Now, why did God so dramatically answer that prayer meeting when he doesn't so dramatically answer others? Well, I don't know the answer to that. Sometimes, as, if you continue to read in chapter 5, someone lies about what they give to the church, and they died. And that doesn't happen all the time. Probably thankful for that. I don't know why he did it here, but I think he is highlighting one thing that he enjoyed about this prayer meeting. And that is this, that they were dependent. They were utterly dependent upon God. They knew they didn't have a chance to do anything as witnesses apart from God's Spirit. They knew that they wouldn't even get out the door. And so they prayed, they pleaded, God, give us your Spirit. You see that in Acts chapter 1. Remember they were praying for all those days for the Spirit? They knew they needed the Spirit. Do you need the Spirit? Do you understand the essential, the absolute necessity of having to be filled with the Spirit that you might do the work? I, I think a lot of times our prayerlessness is not an issue of self-discipline or the lack of self-discipline. Our prayerlessness is really an issue of our self-sufficiency. I mean, I, I, think, I think we feel like we can do it. We're theologically trained. We're intelligent people. A lot of churches run. They can carry on their programs. They can have times of preaching. They can have great music. They can do all these things and never once ask the Spirit for help in any way. And, and I think they're pleading with it. When was the last time you asked, would you fill me with your Spirit that I might fight sin as I ought? When will you, will you fill me with your Spirit that I may love this person that I'm really struggling with? God, would you fill me with your spirit that I could share the gospel with this person that I'm kind of intimidated by? Would you fill me with the spirit that I can love my wife well and display and adorn the gospel to her? It, it, it's, and the, the, the incredible privilege that we have here is that Jesus has already told us that he'll grant the spirit. In chapter 11 of Luke, I've been hitting it probably three or four weeks in a row. If though you are evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? He's begging us. One author said it this way, God doesn't mock us with His promises. He says, I cannot imagine any of you tantalizing your child by exciting in Him a desire that you did not intend to gratify. It were a very ungenerous thing to offer alms to the poor 
And then when they hold out their hand to mock their poverty with a denial. It were a cruel addition to the miseries of the sick. If they're taken to the hospital and they're left to die unattended or uncared for. When God leads you to pray, he means you to receive. So if he says that when you ask for the Spirit, he'll give it to you, he means what he says. So we see this occasion is unique to us, perhaps, in that physical persecution, but there are many challenges. There are many things that will oppose us in our Christian life. There are many things that you will face this week that will want to silence you, just like these religious leaders wanted to silence these apostles. There are many things that want to silence you. And what are you going to do? Are you going to pray? Would you grab a brother or sister and ask them to pray? And savor God first? Just enjoy the fact that he is the creator of all things, sovereign over creation, and sovereign over the person that you may be intimidated by? And remind yourself as you seek to be given the spirit that you might have boldness to speak. So let us this week, and then, and then let's expect, God, what will you do? God, how will you shake our lives, evidencing your presence with us? Let this week be just an initial foray into being bolder, into seeking more of God's spirit. Even, even one person we begin to move towards asking for prayer, speaking about the gospel. He says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, we're getting to the ends of the earth. So let's be faithful in that. Let's take a moment now and just, and just silently perhaps confess our sins or pray. You pray right now, God, fill me with your spirit that I might be bold in my life. Or pray that you might ask forgiveness for failing to do this. And then I'll pray for us in a moment.